Aloha. You are listening to Chad Ford's NBA Big Board on the Locked On Podcast Network. Today's episode is brought to you by Built Bar. Go to BuiltBar.com and use promo code LOCKEDON and you'll get 20% off your next order. My guest today and longtime co-host, John Hollinger from The Athletic, is back with us. John, it's been several months, uh, but it's good to be talking to you again about the 2020 NBA draft. Yeah, it's good to be back, and uh, we're finally closing in on the big day here after uh, six months of hype with no games, so this will be nice. <laughs> you know, uh, for so long we were talking about this, we had no idea uh, when this was actually going to happen, and really, you know, back when you and I were talking, it was still just really unclear what was going to happen with the league, but we've had a successful bubble, we had a successful NBA Finals, uh, things seem fairly back to normal in some ways with the NBA. I know uh, that certainly the draft evaluation process has changed pretty dramatically for teams and the, the rules that the league has has put on teams as far as how they can evaluate prospects, bringing them in to the gym. And as a longtime NBA exec who went through that process, right, that pre-draft process uh, with the Grizzlies for years, how much do you think this affects NBA teams, what the league is limiting teams on doing right now? Well, to, to me, it actually subtracts some of the rash decisions that I think took teams down the wrong path a little bit. We've had a lot of discussions, I know, in the past chat about whether teams should do workouts at all, whether the, whether the recency bias of the workout was so strong that it basically overwhelmed your decision-making process to such an extent that, that it did you more harm than good. Uh, the, the one thing that teams are going to get, uh, it looks like, is the measurement data that they would normally get from the combine, which is the biggest thing they probably wonder about. Heights, weights, wingspans, those types of things. We always like to redo those with the prospects that we brought into our own gym uh, and just make sure, especially there were some times where there were measurements that were maybe a little suspicious, you know, the guys did the old trick where they would short arm the standing reach so that their vertical would look bigger, you know, um, and a couple little tricks like that. And there were one or two guys, and maybe we had certain questions uh, about that our trainers could do specific uh, drills or measurements with, but by, by and large, I, I, I think not having the workouts might make the draft better. I'm I'm with you. It's interesting to hear the NBA execs and scouts that I've talking to complaining about this, but it seems like again we'd have to do some sort of empirical study on this, and I'm not sure it's ever been done. Whether though that draft process in the end actually hurt uh, teams more than it, more than it helped them. Now, of course, we have we have the added problem this year, which is that they didn't get a full scouting season in. Um, as well, no NCAA tournament, uh, you know, for example, though I think you and I have thought, talked about that in the past as well as sometimes being problematic for NBA teams too and overvaluing it. Yeah, especially because that tends to be when peripheral decision makers, let's say, uh, say owners and head coaches especially get more involved in the, in the uh, process and maybe come, you know, come to a decision based on a small sample that is not representative of the player's overall season. I think for most scouting departments, their feeling is almost that they're done by the time the NCAA tournament starts. You know, they'll, 
sure, they'll watch the games if they're on, but a lot of people are uh, focused on Europe by that point, actually. Um, and the conference tournaments are really kind of the end of the scouting season cycle. I do, I do think that a lot of, uh, a lot of teams are disappointed. They didn't get that one final look at a player in a conference tournament or, um, uh, you know, that where you can, you can see so many players, obviously at the conference tournaments, it's really great one-stop shopping from a scouting perspective. So a lot of teams will feel like they, they fell a little short scouting wise because of that. They just didn't have their full conference tournament season. This would only affect a few teams who had, you know, a top pick, but how much does it affect a team like Minnesota or Golden State that they don't get LaMelo Ball in, for example, or James Wiseman, where you had a much more limited uh, window to scout those players than you did a college player that played all season? Usually this is maybe when that time would have been more valuable. Now, I know they can bring someone in, and it's not like LaMelo or James Wiseman was going to be playing against someone else in any of these workouts. But do you think it affects that process at all? Maybe, maybe a little bit. I mean, what the Wiseman thing took people by surprise, so I'm not sure everyone got eyes on him. So I think they got hurt with that. LaMelo, most of the teams, I think, were aware that they needed to hustle down to Australia if they want to get eyes on him because he probably wouldn't play a full season. Uh, where it could hurt a team like Golden State is that they didn't necessarily think at the beginning of the year that they need to make needed to make plans to see LaMelo Ball in Australia. You know, they, they thought they were going to win 50 games, right? So if you're a surprise bad team, I, th- I think maybe it has, uh, maybe it hurts you, hurts you more what happened there. Uh, I, I'm not sure where Minnesota falls on that continuum, but, you know, they were initiating a new front office at the same time. So maybe, you know, getting, getting their guys down there to see, to see LaMelo might not have been on the top of their list either. So it's an interesting scout for both those teams. I think the other thing that we're going to find is, that a couple of players were able, like Denny Avdia, to come back and play, and and maybe we're going to see a recency bias with him uh, shooting up a number of uh, of boards because he was like the only only player that you could see play, and he plays you know eight games in the Israeli league, which is a pretty limited sample size. Plays really well. We'll we'll talk about him uh, in in a minute. Uh, but he had one of the rare advantages of being one of the few players that actually could go out and play five on five basketball in a competitive setting and, and scouts could focus on him. Uh, what's the situation? What's the situation with the medicals? Because I know actually, you know, we talked about measurements, but I think the, the biggest takeaway from the pre-draft camp and everything is obviously having those physicals and, and getting that information. And I know teams often like to have their team doctors there uh, as well. And they like to do their own, their own workup on these players. How much do you think that's going to be impacted by the protocols the NBA is putting in place to get teams those, the, that medical information? I do think that process will definitely be affected I wonder, I mean, I go back and look at previous drafts. I think what happened with Greg Oden scared the crap out of a lot of teams in subsequent drafts. And you go back and look, and teams were probably too conservative with medical cases. Um, and so you almost wonder if if the opposite situation exists where, as sort of as with draft workouts, where something that had been causing teams to make worse decisions is now removed from play. I've, I've wondered about that at least. 
There does seem to be, it's interesting because I think as just human beings, we want as much information as possible, even though I think the research shows that sometimes there can be too much information, right? And it can actually it can actually cause us problems. But I think the instinct when you're making huge multi-million dollar franchise altering decisions is I want as much information as possible. And it's really interesting to see how skittish NBA teams are uh, right now about this draft, even though in one aspect, because teams were shut down for so long, they've probably had more time to actually focus on tape uh, and to have discussions about this draft and to think deeply about what they're going to do with the draft. And to make uh, background calls too, which is a valuable part of it. Yeah. Right. Because the NBA season is so compressed typically that, you know, you're talking finals and a week later you've got the draft and you know for teams that are in the playoff hunt there isn't a lot of time to to shift and also you have to be thinking about free agency as well and all that timeline is really all smashed together the fact that it's 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 expanded out a little bit uh, for the NBA this season I actually think it means that you have more time to think about this deliberate about it your coaching staff clearly has more time if you want them involved <laughs> yeah, that's that's a double-edged sword there. Right. But they normally just don't even have the time, uh, right, to really focus on that when they're when they're game planning for games. And I think some of the critique about getting coaches involved is that they haven't dug deeply into these players, right? And so it's more a superficial perception that they're going to have about particular players. I, I know with a lot of teams, their coaching staff has gotten a lot more involved than they typically would just because they have the bandwidth to do it. And do you think that uh, you do you think the coach's voice matters more when they actually have the time to do the homework? It's tough because you can't you can't deny the things that they're going to see as coaches, but the perspective is so much more short term driven on the coaching side, which you can hardly blame them given the life expectancy of coaches in this league, right? But I, I think. I think that can influence bad decision-making a lot of times. Yeah, it was really interesting. Uh, I rewatched Moneyball uh, this week, um, just randomly. It was on Netflix. I, I, I needed something to do. And, you know, obviously that's talking about baseball and Billy Bean in the Oakland days, but really the start uh, of using uh, statistics and advanced statistics in baseball with a team that went all in on that. And the conversations that he has uh, with Art Howe uh, the manager, uh, you know, to the point that he has to make some radical trades uh, mid-season, uh, including trading away uh, a player who was probably going to be an all-star um, because he wanted to play a guy who was a catcher his whole life <laughs> um, at, at first base, uh, who didn't really know how to play first base solely on the premise that he gets on base more, um, right? And uh, it, it's it's really... I think it's really interesting still in the NBA and you see, you know, Daryl Morey uh, being let go by the Rockets, how much there still is a lot of differences in front offices about how you evaluate talent, how you put together a team, what really matters or doesn't matter. And then it reflects back into these conversations about the draft because your philosophy about how you're going to play and what and what your team's about also is reflected in what you value in the draft. Yeah. And I, you know, I've always felt like though, at the end of the day, it's a talent grab. And if I, if I can get talent, you can do trades and you can do other things around it to optimize your team. But if you've, regardless of 
position or style or whatever, if you get somebody who's just not that good, like you, you, you've wasted your draft in some ways. Cause yeah, I mean, cause you can get minimum guys or whatever to just be back end of your rotation players. You don't need to draft that necessarily. All right, John. Well, let's dive into uh, our big boards. Uh, I just released on Friday uh, my big board 2.0, which was updated after talking to a number of NBA teams and scouts. I know you've been doing your own analysis all along. Um, interesting. How much have things changed since we've talked last time? Because you you don't have a lot of extra data to input into into your system now. But I know that that's not all you do in putting together. Uh, you know, your, your big board, have you seen a lot of change on your board or has it pretty much stayed the same for you? It's pretty much the same. Although I want to see where some of these measurements come in. Like I'm interested to see how tall Tyrell Terry measured, you know, there's word out there that he's supposedly six, three now, which I think that that does change your evaluation of him a little bit. And he's um, put on 20, 20 plus pounds, right? Yeah. I mean, put, putting on the pounds, you know, whatever, like guys fill out as they get older. Sometimes when guys put on too much too soon, it's, it can be, uh, it doesn't work out quite as well as people might hope. So, uh, that, that probably, that part probably wouldn't sway me too much. Um, but actually physically being taller, like that isn't fixable. Right. So that, 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 that to me would be something to push him up. So I'm interested in some of the measurements that they get, get on these guys, uh, no shoe height, wingspan, uh, you know, standing vertical, I think is the other one that's kind of interesting, uh, to look at, but basically just, you know, the, the, the physical factor of just how tall are you and how long are your arms? Like the, the, those are the ones I'm really interested in because those are the, uh, ones that aren't changeable. And of those two, John, uh, you know, wingspan, standing reach, or just taking straight height, I'm assuming it's the, it's the standing reach, and and the wingspan that that probably matters a little bit more. Someone's six three with a six eight wing, or they're six four with a six four wing. Uh, that that seems like you go with a six three with a six eight wing as as being a bigger player. You would think that, right? Because you don't block shots with the top of your head. But um, we've actually found um, that they all sort of matter, and there's. Um, so it's, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's multicollinearity with them. Like, like they're all correlated with each other very highly. Right. Um, but, uh, that it sort of depended positionally, which one was the most valuable of the three, uh, so that there wasn't one across the board answer actually. Uh, but you're, you know, cause actually you're, your just your overall height does matter because that's your eye level basically um, to see the basket or to see plays. So that actually does matter some too if you think about it. And then obviously your your wingspan mat matters for the amount of uh, horizontal room you can cover and the standing reach for the amount of vertical room you can cover. Um, so they 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 all kind of factor in hand size. I know the NBA majors hand size. Have you found any real correlation on, on hand size? No, no. I actually wish they still did the bench press because that is negatively correlated. In other words, yeah, yeah. Well, remember Thanks. when Kevin Durant, I think, could like yeah, bench he it did like zero once, yeah. or zero, yeah. right? And everybody yeah. panicked yeah. for a minute. And yeah. um, boy, what a what a waste of yeah. time that was. And Sheldon Williams did like a zillion. Right. And so hand size doesn't really matter. Not, I mean, 
it probably does matter, but there are other factors that are much more indicative of how good you are at basketball. So like once you have those, you don't need hand size. Uh, what about the what about the speed, the dash, the the lateral the the lateral speed test, and anything there that really correlates for you? The shuttle is so technique driven that I think it's kind of worthless. Um, the uh, the sprint actually, uh, I kind of like to look at that for uh, for guards, especially small guards. Um, you, you sort of know, like if somebody's five eleven and doesn't run a fast sprint, you're kind of like, yeah, I don't know if this is going to work, you know. Um, but the the guy the guys who can really fly in the sprint uh, at the point guard spot, especially, there is some correlation there. Every team has their own techniques about what they're going to do when they bring a player in, and uh, you know some some players you're going to be able to get to play against other players. Some players the agents will insist that they're only going to do you know the essentially one on none workout. Uh, one thing I think probably pretty uniformly uh, that teams do is some sort of shooting drills. You know, they're going to sort of look at shots and and put them in various positions um, to shoot the basketball. Have you ever seen any real correlation with a, a, a player's shooting drills on a particular day? Um, it, it seems like it, it seems like this is another one of those double-edged swords, right? I bring somebody in. If they shoot the lights out that day, which is a pretty small sample size, right? Because players can get hot. I, I, I'm... I'm predisposed to say, especially if they maybe had shooting problems, oh, maybe they've been really working on their shot. You know, it's really dropping here. If they have a terrible day and and nothing goes in, which even happens for the best of shooters uh, from time to time, you know, Steph Curry has games where he's, you know, one for nine from three. I'm also sort of predisposed at that point to start, start to question things. I, I wonder why you even do it, right? Like wh- why in a, in a drill setting, uh, other than maybe you want to look at shooting form, but I still think I would prefer to look at shooting form in a game setting uh, than I would in a drill setting. Uh, we always like to have, um, we had a shooting coach that we would have look at him and just kind of give us an evaluation of like, what what is the, what do you think of this technique? Is it is it broken? Is it not great, but fixable? Is it really good? Just kind of, you know, where is he on the scale? And, you know, obviously a lot of people can see with the eye test, like, Hey, this Curry guy's a pretty good shooter, you know, but, uh, uh, there's, there are some cases where maybe it's not total, not as clear. And so getting that input is helpful. Uh, the other thing I really liked it for is that some of these college bigs just go, just never take a jump shot. And so, you have four jump shots from the entire season on tape. Well, then if they come in and shoot a hundred in your gym, you have 25 times as much information as you did. So for, for, from that perspective, I think it's good, but you're right for a lot of these college guards that have, you know, a hundred, you can see on tape of them shooting a hundred threes over the course of their career. Like, okay, the, what they did in your gym, you can kind of devalue because of that. Anything to this idea, because often the NBA three-point line is further away. Uh, I, I know in the college game anymore, some 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 guards are pulling up well, you know, well beyond that anyway, and we're able to see, uh, you know, that uh, that shooting range. Uh, anything to uh, looking at how they're shooting from NBA three, um, because maybe there isn't a big sample size in college, and and how big of a how big of a shift is that for college players from the college line to the NBA line? Going back, I think we've all overrated that because the guys that I thought were going to maybe have that were like good college shooters that I wondered 
okay, it looks like a little bit of a strain. Is he going to be able to do the same thing? They all were fine. It, it, it seems like the one thing that really correlates, again, and you've talked so much about this, is how they shoot free throws is probably going to be the best predictor for how they're going to shoot NBA threes uh, more than more than anything else that you might do in a gym on a given day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And usually you have a ton of information on that. Uh, if they're a good college player, they're probably getting to the line a bunch. Well, uh, if you're listening and, and you're a draft fan and you're, you're panicked a little bit about what your team isn't able to do, uh, hopefully we've dispelled uh, you know, some of that anxiety about you know, how much this is really going to impact uh, NBA evaluation. And I, I, tend to, I think this is a great experiment in some ways this year, um, you know, taking away some of those tools, whether it might actually interestingly be helpful. Let's dive into our big boards, uh, John. Okay. And um, I'll, I, I'm going to give my top five, and then uh, I want to hear your top five, and then let's just discuss that for a minute. So I've got LaMelo Ball one, Wiseman two, Anthony Edwards three, Tyrese Halliburton four, Killian Hayes five. And again, this is not predicting where they will go uh, with a particular team. This isn't a mock draft. This is just overall talent. This was an aggregate of talking to NBA teams and scouts about where they had particular players ranked. And I will just add, there was a lot of variability here um, as well. And so uh, guys are all over the place on NBA boards. There's not what I would call like a major consensus like there was last year with Zion and John Morant. Uh, what do you got for your top five right now? So I have LaMelo Ball, number one. Uh, I have Anthony Edwards, second. Killian Hayes, third. Onyeka Okongwu, fourth. And Obi Toppin, fifth. Okay. Uh, so let's uh, – uh, we both have LaMelo Ball, one. You still confident he's the best player in this draft? Is, is are you Do you have him clearly number one, or is it close for you? For me – for me, it was close just because there, there wasn't like one supernova talent in this. There's no Anthony Davis in this draft, right? Um, I do think LaMelo Ball's ceiling is pretty clearly higher than than some of the other players in this draft. As like a big guard who rebounds, can push the ball, can make all the passes. Like there's, there's a lot there to build on. So I do think he's the most uh, talented player, so to say. So um, to, to me... He's fairly clearly number one, although I could see it like I could see a case for Edwards. I could even maybe see a case for Hayes. But I, for me, it's LaMelo Ball. Interesting Killian Hayes. Uh, Got to give Kevin O'Connor a shout out for the ringer who early on in the season put him number one uh, on on his big board, which I think a lot of people thought was really strange. Uh, but it's really interesting. The more that I've talked to NBA teams, how much they've come around on Killian Hayes. I mean, you know, probably when Kevin did that, Killian Hayes wasn't even in the top 10 on, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of the team's uh, boards He's really sort of come along. What, what are you seeing in Killian Hayes that has him as a top three um, pick? Cause I think everybody agrees. Edwards is like one, two or three. He's probably the most consistent on boards. He's in the top three on every team. I mean, there's some teams that don't have LaMelo ball in their top three. Um, interestingly enough, but I, I don't think I talked to a team that didn't have Anthony Edwards one, two or three. Right, but they're all hoping somebody else takes them, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a there's there's some real concern about the basketball IQ and you know some things yeah. like that. There's some real concerns. I mean, everybody loves the physical talent um, yeah. that's there. Uh, what, what's up with Killian Hayes? Yeah, so for me, that big wing who can handle the ball and defend is the hardest player archetype to find. So the fact that he can be that guy potentially really pushes him up the list. 
especially get, you know, a lot of the guys right after him on the, on the board are like fours and fives or, uh, or more kind of traditional three and D wings. It's just an easier player archetype to find in other places. So, uh, because that Hayes, Hayes moves up for me, um, there's reason to hope for his shot because he has been a good foul shooter, uh, throughout his career, even though he hasn't shot the three. Well, he can get to step backs and has some kind of funky moves. Uh, not in my top two, because athletically, I don't think he's on the same level as LaMelo Ball and, and Edwards. And that could be the thing that holds him back. Um, th- that and the, you know, the shooting, obviously. But uh, even if the shooting comes around, you just wonder, so how high a level can he get to with being just sort of okay athletically? He, uh, you know, one of the, one of the narratives about him, and again, I don't know if you have any historical data on this, is just how much he improved, um, as, as a young player, um, this year, uh, he seemed to take his game to a completely different level. And I, for a lot of scouts, when they're talking about that, they see that as a, as a huge positive. He's learning, he's adding things to his game. He's continuing to develop his game. You know, we, as we know, some players stagnate at a certain point, they, they, they hit a peak and, and then, you know, you want to project that they're going to go beyond that peak, but there isn't a lot of evidence. They've maybe been peaking, you know, since their junior year of high school, frankly, uh, in, in what they're doing. And so seeing Hayes do that, the other thing I would say about Hayes, I think when you watch his jump shot, uh, from a from a form standpoint, it, it looks it looks good, um, right? Whether what's going in or not, it, it doesn't look like there's a major hitch in his shot or something else about, around his form that's going to be pr- particularly pro- problematic. How how challenging is the the left handed dominance uh, going to be? It seems like if there's one thing that scouts don't you know will will point as a flaw for him, he's pretty left handed dominant. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I do expect that to be something of an issue. I mean, left-handed people in general are the best people in the world. So I think you feel good from that perspective. But uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, the thing with him though, I mean, you're, you're playing, you're playing point guard and they're going to be able to tilt their defense to take away his, his left hand probably and force him to be a more right-handed player. Now, a lot of players over the course of their careers are able to make this adjustment you know, some of them relatively quickly. Uh, and you just have to see how that pans out. Or he could be one of those guys like John Stockton who doesn't use his left hand for the entirety of his 20-year career and it doesn't matter, you know? Okay, let's, uh, you know, Kong Wu, I have six, so pretty close to you at four. Seems to be a general consensus around there. Obi Toppin, I had higher on my original board, dropped him to eight. There are still teams that have him, you know, I, I, I talked to one team that has him number two. Uh, you know, on their board. So there, there's a real range there. Uh, it, it seems like this is the, the thing where there is a bias and sometimes for good reason against 22 year old, uh, you, you know, prospects, especially 22 year old sophomores. And, uh, and I know that that's baked into, you know, some of your ratings, well, age matters. Uh, why do you have Toppin so high? Just his his offensive tool set, I think, is the most developed of any player in this draft. Uh, the ability, when it, I actually went to Dayton to see him play, and I was really impressed with just just watching him. Maybe this is an example of the small sample bias, Chad. Uh, watching him pregame go go through his uh, three point shooting drills, just seeing. Uh, what an easy, quick release it is for him. 
and just saying like, okay, that's going to replicate in the NBA. Like he's definitely going to be able to do that. He can definitely post up against switches and, and mash people. Right. He's a good passer. He runs the floor. He's going to be a really effective role, man, I think in, in pick and roll. So he has a lot of ways to hurt you and create mismatches at the offensive end. Now, is he going to give all that back at the defensive end? I think that's a question uh, that, that some teams have. I, I, I actually think like his defensive tape wasn't great to me, but I also felt like he had some catch up speed to him where he could get back track back and block a shot after a guard beat him initially. Um, he had some ability to use his length to block jump shots. So I, I wasn't, uh, as thrown off maybe by, by the defensive tape as, as some other people might've been, uh, I do worry that he's not a great rebounder. Like he's a little light to play five, even, even in a small ball era, maybe he fills out and that gets better. Uh, but I think he's almost a straight four at this point for at least the first couple of years of his career. Let's talk about two guys I have in my top five that you didn't, uh, James Wiseman at number two. Uh, and, and I know the sample size is very, very small for Wiseman. It seems to me in talking to some of the NBA teams, he may have been helped a bit, uh, by the teams playing in the NBA finals and, and teams starting to come back around to the role that a, an athletic versatile big like Bam Adebayo or Anthony Davis uh, plays in the league. I know we've talked about the primacy of wings and, and the primacy of ball handlers you know, in the league. Uh, Wiseman is a unique physical specimen in that he has you know, all the physical tools. He has the quickness. And, and he seems to have uh, some offensive game uh, as well, though, again, we didn't get to see much of it uh, at Memphis. Uh, where do you have him on your on your board have, and why? I have him eighth. Um, okay. to, to me, he was a little more of a traditional five. Like, I, I think he's pretty like he's definitely like he's big. He's pretty athletic. Is he athletic enough that you're going to have him defending like you're just OK, leaving him switched on point guards and playoff games? I had a hard time getting there. And that to me put him more in the like the, the player he reminds me of a lot when I watch him is Hassan Whiteside, like just like just, you know, really big and long, pretty athletic, can shoot a little. Uh, so I wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if he was really productive. But I think giving giving that production and being a little more of a traditional five, like there's just not as much high end value there. So that that's what knocked him down for me. I, I had a Kongwu higher because I just felt like he was more the mold of the the Adebayo, the switchable defend one through five type of guy that you you know have out there at the end of a playoff game. Let's uh, talk about Tyrese Halliburton out of Iowa State. Have him, have him four uh, on, on my big board. Uh, I'm personally a pretty big fan. I, I really, really like his game. I know there's not that one elite thing that he does, which I, I, you know, I think is certainly a knock against him, you know, maybe ranking him higher. Where do you have him on your board? I have him sixth. Uh, yeah, a little more of a jack of all trades type. Uh, some concerns about his on-ball defense, actually. Um, but I think he's like a good overall team defender. Reads the game well, very long, gets gets steals, gets deflections, good rebounder. Uh, background on him is great from everyone I had talked to. Um, so yeah, I'm definitely definitely a fan of his. Uh, good shooter, even though it's a funky release. Uh, you wonder about him offensively. 
can he be a guy who can get to a pull-up eventually? Uh, because if not, it kind of limits what he can do as a, as a creator, even though he's a good passer. Uh, might make him more of like a secondary guy uh, because of that. Um, I'd love to see him actually here in Atlanta where you could play him as a backup one, but then play him next to Trey Young also and have him, you know, space in the floor or be as like a second side pick and roll guy. I think he'd be really good here. All right. That's an interesting place for him. I also think that if Golden State were to keep uh, their pick, he might be an interesting choice. Maybe two is too high. Uh, Maybe they're trading down a little bit. But as as a player that I think might actually be able to come in and contribute uh, some minutes for them, uh, and and be able to play, uh, at, you know, at a high level uh, right away. When you look at some of the other prospects and what their learning curve is going to be, Halliburton to me seems to be a player that might be able to come in and be more ready to positively contribute uh, right away to a team like Golden State as well. Built Bar is the best tasting protein bar ever. The improved Built Bar tastes even better than the old ones. There are 18 amazing flavors, six new flavors, caramel brownie, cookies and cream, cherry barcia, lemon almond cheesecake, carrot cake, apple almond crisp. That's on top of all of the original flavors that you typically love, the coconut almond, the raspberry, the banana bread, one of my favorites, the mint brownie. Also love that orange bar and the coconut one as well, of course, being in Hawaii. And the great thing about these bars is that they taste like a candy bar, but they're actually healthy. And for, for someone like me who exercises a lot and runs a lot and cares a lot about what he puts into his system, I love the fact that it's low calorie, it's low sugar, it's got high protein, it's got high fiber, 19 grams of protein, uh, in fact, which is which is pretty awesome. And so go to builtbar.com and use promo code locked on. That's builtbar.com. Use promo code locked on and you'll get 20% off your next order. Use promo code locked on for 20% off at builtbar.com. And we're back talking 2020 NBA draft big board. John Hollinger and I have talked a bit about our top five and a few other players that didn't make each other's top five. I wanted to now switch switch gears for just a second. And let's think about what um, the top five teams in this draft might do with their pick and who we think actually might be a good uh, pick for them. And let's start with the Minnesota Timberwolves at number one. Let's just also recognize it seems like every single one of these teams is in conversation to trading this pick. Uh, I think everybody's a, a bit scared uh, to draft high in this draft. And and I think there's motivations for teams like Minnesota and, and Golden State, especially um, to, to, to potentially trade out. But let's just assume for a minute that they're, they're keeping their pick where they're at um, right now. Who's the best pick for the Minnesota Timberwolves in your mind? Yeah, so you can go back and forth between Ball and Edwards here. Uh, but I, to me, I don't think you take Edwards over Ball just because you have D'Angelo Russell. I don't think he's so good that it dictates who you take with the number one overall pick in the draft. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, if you have Ball 
and Russell. Like Russell's a good shooter off the ball too. Um, and you do need multiple ball handlers at some level. Uh, and then you always have the ability to trade later if, if for some reason it just doesn't it just doesn't work. But I think you, you accumulate more trade value by by going with ball as well. And you know, that front office coming from the Houston mold, like <laughs> I think they definitely think about trade value. Let me put it put it that way. Uh, so I, I would still be inclined to take LaMelo Ball if I was Minnesota. I'm with you. Uh, I, I I think that's that's who I would take as well. I From most of what I hear, that sounds like it's a bit unlikely to happen. I, I don't think that's where they've, they've focused right now. And certainly from a trade value standpoint, I, I've been talking about this since my very first uh, podcast. You know, the New York Knicks and LaMelo Ball, I, I feel like there's there's got to be, they're going to do something to find a way to get him there. And and so I think you've got a, a thirsty team. I just don't know that the, the Knicks have the, the, unfortunately, the assets, um, you know, to get there. Um, but, you know, this is this is the team that I, I, I could see being the most motivated um, to get ball in some way. And, and I certainly think Minnesota is 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 serious about trading this pick and are going to be working really hard to see if they can they can make that happen because I think ball isn't the maybe the greatest fit as you said and I'm not sure that Edwards warrants being taking Edwards over him so I, I think that's a really interesting calculus let's go to Golden State at number two again are they likely to trade the pick it sounds like it I, I think there's there's a, a lot of motivations why Golden State would trade this pick but assuming they can't they can't make a trade or there just isn't really great value out there. Who should they take at number two? So my argument here would be to take the player that you think has the most trade value. If you're golden state, if you can't trade the pick on draft night, you're still probably in a position where you might end up trading this at some point. Uh, you know, I think golden state with where they are in that time frame with those other guys, they're looking at this as like, this is the guy that we trade with Andrew Wiggins to get Bradley Beal, right? Like that's that that sort of has to be your mentality a little bit, doesn't it? So who has the most trade value of who's left? It's probably either James Wiseman or Anthony Edwards. Um, so Wiseman, even though he's a five, I think a lot of people are intrigued by him. Uh, I'm maybe less intrigued than some others, but I do think around the league, there does seem to be like some some real interest in him. And then... Edwards, I think everyone thinks is the second most talented player, but I, I'm not sure he's a guy that people are excited to trade, trade for. for yeah, right? Exactly. Like we, we talked about, I think teams are like a little bit afraid to draft him. I think yeah. they might even be more afraid to trade yeah. assets for him, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's a really fascinating uh, conundrum there. Um, yeah, I, I think I think it's the same thing. And, and by the way, if LaMelo balls there at two, then I think that's a no-brainer for Golden absolutely. State to take him. Again, for the trade value alone, uh, not to mention the fact that his passing ability and basketball IQ and other things, like he he might find a way to fit in Golden State. Now, with Golden State in win now mode uh, and needing another like four or five type, I think Obi Toppin is an interesting name here, right? Because he could probably fit in offensively right away a lot better than some of these other guys. Yeah, interesting, uh, and a, a guy that they're they're looking at uh, for sure uh, at number two. Um, okay, let's go to three. Charlotte Hornets are on the board. I mean, you got to go best player available. I mean, they got nothing, right? Uh, Ed Edwards, I think is 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 the obvious pick. Just they don't have a lot at the two right now. I mean, they have the two small guards, Graham and uh, 
Rozier. Uh, Graham's a Kansas guy, so right away you kind of dis- discount him a little bit, right? Uh, <laughs> you know I had to get that in there. And then uh, I, I think Edwards is the best pick for them. If he's not there, it, like if it goes ball Edwards, then what do they do at three? I think that's a really interesting question, whether you go Wiseman, whether you go Hayes, whether you go Halliburton or Okongwu. Uh that that's a more interesting question for Shaw. I mean, they definitely, they need a five. So you could argue for Wiseman. Um, I, I, I just wonder if, if it's harder in a market like Charlotte to find that on ball creator. And if that pushes you toward taking Hayes. Yeah. And, and really interesting. Uh, you know, this is a team that really needs the help and really needs to land land uh you know a a a hit here like a really solid like double or triple here and i'm not sure that again where they're drafting that's necessarily there for them and so it it seems like you know charlotte gets into the top three and the the real thing to do if you're charlotte is like the hinky special where you draft somebody you know is going to be out for the season so that you're tanking for the next draft right away and to get Cade Cunningham, uh, that, 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 that's almost what they, there's much more excitement about the next draft, right. Than this one. Uh, so, so I don't see a player like that on the board though, for, for Charlotte. Okay. Chicago bulls have the fourth pick in the draft. Yeah. You know, the nuggets love their internationals and Arturis Karnishevis came from there to become GM of the bulls. So I think the, the Denny Avdia, uh, connection here is is one that people are making i i do think the bulls could use another guard uh i think halliburton would be a pretty good fit here i think hayes would be a pretty good fit uh front court's a little crowded right like the the wisemans the okongwus the toppins maybe you know you already have carter and markin in there there were a lot recent lottery picks for them uh sort of have to make it i know it's a different regime so maybe they make an evaluation that they're just going to draft over the top of them. But uh, it seems to me more of the, the perimeter guys seem like better fits there. I, I think so, too. I, I, I like Killian Hayes here and, and Tyrese Halliburton. I like both of those picks here. And I know that the, the Bulls have drafted, you know, uh, a number of guards in the past. But I, I just think both of them, their versatility, a lot of what they bring to the table. And I'm not sure they're not, they're not better than the guards that they have on the table. And that's always, you know, something, you know, I always go back to Portland, you know, when they they pass on Chris Paul in the Darren Williams draft because, uh, you know, they've got um, Sebastian Telfair. And, and you know, they want to develop Sebastian Telfair, but I think any, any fair-minded person at the time coming in saw that both Chris Paul and Darren Williams were better prospects than Sh- Sebastian Telfair's ceiling could possibly be. But instead, they trade down a couple of, of spots and they draft Martel Webster uh, instead, who was supposed to be a fit. And of course, Webster turns out to, to to not be a really great player and Chris Paul, amazing. And, you know, for a few years, Darren Williams um, looked like he might even be better than Chris Paul. Yeah, those those Darren Williams, Chris Paul debates were, were fun for that, uh, for, for those 18 months. And, 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 you know, so for Bulls fans that are like, you know, really, we're going to draft another guard. The answer is, yeah. And especially in this particular case. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that in both cases, Halliburton or Killian Hayes, that you might not be drafting your best guard. Um, all right. Cleveland Cavaliers at number five. Yeah. They're an interesting one because 
I mean, they, you know, they drafted Sexton and Garland high the last two drafts. They traded for, but on the big side, they traded for traded for Drummond. You still have Love and Nance there. You'd really love if there was like an awesome three that they could draft, right? So I, I do think there's going to be some temptation to take Avdia and kind of, you know, kind of hammer him into that hole. Uh, I, I still think they need better guards. I, I think Garland was not very good at all. I think Sexton is a good scorer and very weak in other phases of the game, uh, especially a guard who can pass. So again, I think Hayes and Hayes or Halliburton, whoever's left is the best pick for them. I'm, I'm again, we're in total agreement, uh, on this as well. I, I think that's the way to go. Um, and I, I think that again, you see the variability there. We also know again, I think literally with all five of those teams, they're exploring lots of other options and trades and trading up and trading down and, and what have you as well. And so it's it's a little bit hard. I've waited on putting together a mock draft because there's there's just so much um, that's going on. It's going to happen soon, uh, but uh, I, I'm still not confident just where teams are sitting with so many of these uh, prospects right now. Let's take one more break and we'll come back and talk about a few high risers and uh, a few guys that have been uh, falling in the draft. Okay, we're back. Chad Ford's NBA Big Board. I'm with John Hollinger. We've been talking about our top prospects in the draft as well as what we think the top five teams in the draft uh, should do. Let's talk Denny Avdia. He, he gets to go play, uh, finish the season in Israel, shoots the ball better, uh, scoring is up, shoots 40% from three uh, in his eight games uh, that he plays for Maccabi Tel Aviv afterwards. Uh, obviously, shooting is one of the big concerns with Avdia. It seems like for him to become a star, uh, he's going to have to be a really good shooter. And given his free throw percentage uh, and, you know, previous to that, I think he was shooting somewhere in the neighborhood of 32, 33% from three, 55, 56% from the free throw line. How much should teams be factoring in what happened uh, in, you know, June and July uh, in Israel with Denny Avdia right now? Because there were some teams that had him high, but but a lot of teams got more excited about him afterwards. Yeah, and it was in, you know, it was in the B League too, right? It was, I mean, the, the Israeli domestic league is not very good. And uh, I, I I struggled to get too excited about him or, uh, you know, Yam Madar was actually the other guy who's going to be drafted in like the 40s or 50s or whatever. that was playing in that league. Just, I, I just don't think the quality of the league is very good. Uh, Abdia is interesting. I had him 16. I'm debating whether I had him too low, just from the perspective of that he's big and can handle the ball. So he, he, he has two things going for him right away. Uh, but I also think when, when you say he had, he has to, be able to shoot like he has to be able to shoot like I, I don't think he has an, a pathway to being a high level NBA player without being a good shooter and right now he's not so that, that that's the one that's that's a little troublesome for me 
Yeah, and I got a lot of questions from teams. I mean, because there's hype, right? I mean, there's 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 hype around this international player, and I think everybody loves his approach to the game. He's ultra aggressive. He's super confident. There is that sort of it swagger, right, to his game that I think. You know, we joke at the beginning of money, money ball. I like his face or whatever, you know, like some of these weird intangible things that people see. But then you look at that number and that's that's exactly right. I think to, to excel in the NBA, he has to be a good NBA three point shooter. And the evidence that he is uh, really you have to kind of take those eight games. And even then he's got a few nights that he was one for five, one for six, uh, you know, from three. Um, it. It's interesting. He is definitely in the conversation with teams as high as like four, five, and six. I'm seeing that on boards. I didn't really find any team now that really has him out of the top 10. So so 16 would be low. But I actually, if you look at the eye test and sort of the numbers and a few other things, I think like it might be, you know, somewhere between like 10 and 15 probably is more appropriate for what what we actually know about him. Right, right. Some real yeah, projection I'm going a- on there. Yeah, I'm interested to see how he turns out because I, I am a little bit of a skeptic. I mean, like this isn't this certainly this is not a Luca situation, right? Like he was he barely played in the Euroleague games and wasn't that effective when he did. Whereas Luca was, you know, quite possibly the best player in the Euroleague as an 18 year old. So, and and we know unfortunately there's all these comparisons, and you know I'm looking for the next Luca. Well, who's the player that? is the only one available that could even possibly be compared to Luca. It's Denny Avdia. They're not the same player by any stretch of the imagination, and they don't have the same resume, uh, despite the fact that he had some some really good games uh, for uh, Israel in the, in, the, in the league play. You tweeted uh, uh, some concern about watching some video uh, of, uh, I think it's Devin Vassell, right? Out of Florida State. Um, you know, one of the one thing that happens sometimes is is prospects get with trainers and trainers say, you know, I'm going to take your game and I'm going to do something really different with it. And we're going to redo your shot. We all know the Markel Fultz story. Uh, you know, for example, uh, are you really scared? Where's Vassal out on your board right now? So I have him seventh and, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm debating whether I need to adjust that or not. Um, there, he had so, I mean, his resume as a draft prospect was so solid. If you look at the, that Florida state season, if you look at his age, if you look at his trajectory, uh, you look at the background, you look at the ability to shoot and defend. And there's, there's at least some projectability with him, maybe being able to put it on the floor and do some stuff. Although he's more of a guy who gets to a pull up. Um, but, uh, that the jump shot he had during the season, looked a lot better than the jump shot he had on that, on that video where he's taking it back behind his head, like Jamal Wilkes. Uh, so that's definitely a concern. My, uh, my colleague at the athletic Dave Dufour called him the trebuchet, uh, the, the medieval, uh, French weapon that, you know, counterweight and then flings it back. Uh, anyway, uh, I, I, uh, I was definitely concerned when I saw that I got, I got to figure out, uh, in these next two weeks, wh- whether I'm still comfortable with him at seven or whether I need to make an adjustment there. Okay. Tyrese Maxey is getting some Kentucky glow right now. Tyler Hero comes in. Uh, Jamal Murray is dominating, uh, you know, in the playoffs. Uh, Devin Booker 
didn't put up huge numbers for Kentucky when he was there, Cozen, and he's a monster offensively. And this narrative starts around Tyrese Maxey now because he actually started the season on many boards as a as a top ten prospect in the draft. Um, struggled uh, at Kentucky in certain areas of the game, and now there seems to be this this re, redo around Tyrese Maxey right now that maybe you know this is somewhat of the Kentucky Kentucky curse. Uh, that he wasn't maybe put in the optimal position, and, and John Calipari's laughing somewhere, giving how how well uh, his his players tend to do in the NBA. Where where is the appropriate place for Maxi? I have him twelve on my board now. He's definitely moved up, uh, and and some teams have him in their top ten. I've got him twenty sixth. <laughs> um, so uh, I I'm just curious. Um, in, in the those bubble games and in the playoffs, how did uh, Kevin Knox, Malik Monk, and James Young do? <laughs> Touche. <laughs> I, I I think people are you know the the availability heuristic like this. Oh, the, he's like this guy that I'm seeing on TV. Well, I'm not sure he really is. Um, the thing with Hero and Booker in particular that differentiates them from Maxi. It's two things for me. One, they were both knockdown shooters, right? We, we knew that for sure. Um, and which Maxi, let's say has not proven that 29% from three point 29% yeah. this year, yeah. a shot. Okay. And from the free throw line. The other thing though, is that Booker and hero didn't really get opportunities to play on the ball. And, and Maxi did right. Maxi was running the team a lot, especially when Ashton Hagens was out or when Hagens was ineffective, which was kind of a lot, especially in the second half of the year. And just like he wasn't that effective on the ball either. And so it's harder for me to, to talk myself into, well, he didn't get opportunities to do this and that. Well, he, you know, he kind of actually did. And I, so it's just hard for me to get super excited about like six, three, not a great shooter, like athletic markers weren't that great. Maybe he's a better athlete than he got to show at Kentucky, but I don't think he's like a super freak athlete. Um, so like, what, what am I, what am I really buying into? Like, it kind of feels like a, like a third guard or, you know, like, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm just missing something here, but I, I had a hard time getting excited about him. Interesting. Who's the guy that you have considerably higher on your board than I do? Is it still Paul Reed? So Paul, Paul Reed, it, it, it scares me because you're you're the other person I know who is most high on Paul Reed, and yet I am still way higher. Um, I, I think I'm looking at my list here. I think I still have. You know what? I actually, there's one guy we have a bigger difference on. I think because uh, you have Devin Dotson 24th, and I have him 15th. Okay, so there's a nine nine nine, nine, nine spot point gap there. And where where do you have Paul Reed right now? I have him 12th. 12th, and, and I think 20th, he dropped to right? 20. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it, he's really interesting in that he I, I don't under, quite understand it. There are just teams that he's just still not particularly on their radar screen at all. I mean, you know, he's, he's like a second round pick, you know, is, is kind of what they'd say. Why are we talking about him? He's like, you know, he's a second round pick somewhere. Uh, and and a few teams that see what you see, uh, but not quite as high as you see. I didn't I didn't find any team that had him at 12, uh, but some teams that had him in the late teens. Uh, and early 20s, uh, you're seeing that. But it, it's really hard for me because, you know, as I went and watched the tape and, and, and hear what you're saying about him, 
I think your projection of him makes a lot more sense to me than like Precious Achua for for example, who is higher on, you know, some teams boards than Yeah. Than, That's than the cop I don't understand because they're the same age and Reed played better and they're the same like archetype of player. So right. That that's the one that, that really has me scratching my head. Yeah. Uh, I think we've predicted this one early on. Uh, Jaden McDaniels, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, uh, high school phenom, really shaky freshman season at Washington. I mean, really shaky. And yet here, here it comes. Right. People look at the size, you know, they did. They, you want to like a player like Jaden McDaniels and you want to like swing for the fences for upside. Here he is up to 18 uh, on 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 my big board uh, in part because he's he's rising on draft boards. Teams are talking themselves into him as the player with the most upside after you get past the the path, you know, seven, eight, nine players that we're kind of talking about. Buyer beware. I think so. I mean, a to 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 make this work at all, he better be going somewhere with a really good development program, right? Um, because he's going to be unplayable when he gets there. Like you're not just going to be able to throw him in for 15 minutes a game and let him get better that way. Um, I I had him 33rd, but. I can understand, like he's a guy to me that I can understand after those first, say, 15 names are gone. Like the hit rate on the draft is low enough at that point that like, okay, maybe you take a moonshot if you think he has all-star upside. I I kind of don't, but I, I can understand how a team could talk themselves into it. Uh, I, I just, I, I didn't think he was particularly skilled or instinctive and his his athleticism i didn't feel like really was impactful unless he was blocking shots okay john hollinger everybody uh, this is a record by the way i'm, I'm going to talk about two major major things that happened in this podcast that's never happened in another podcast with with john hollinger okay. one he gave much more praise to a kansas player than i did and devon dotson at at 15 yes uh, as opposed to me at 24 and number two, he went the entire podcast without mentioning Dylan Brooks, uh, which I think wow. is a, which is a, a record for us. How did that happen? I'm not really sure how that happened, but uh, I, I I know some some listeners would be really yeah really disappointed. Huh. Yeah, I'm, to work, I'm, dis- work, I'm disappointed in myself. Work work that into the next uh, pod. <laughs> we're, we're gonna bring bring him back. You know, I'm thinking, John. Uh, you know, we did our our uh, redrafts. We didn't do the 2019 NBA draft, and and yeah, now that the right. season's over, and yeah. you know we we got to see a little bit more uh, from mm-hmm. some some prospects, including some prospects in the in the in the playoffs. You want to do yeah. 2019 yeah, NBA redraft? Yeah, sure. Okay, we'll look forward to that on the next uh, John Hollinger podcast. We will be back later in the week. Sports Illustrated's Jeremy Wu is going to join us on our next podcast. You've been listening to Chad Ford's NBA Big Board on the Locked On Podcast Network. Aloha.